Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. I'm CJ McKinney. Children who grow up in the UK undocumented can apply for immigration status and eventually get their British citizenship. But traditionally, this pathway to regularisation was strewn with thorns. Children and young people who managed to get immigration permission have needed to retain it for a full decade with expensive renewals every two and a half years. It's only after completing this 10-year route to settlement that children who may feel and seem entirely British can apply for citizenship. That is starting to change, however, and joining me to discuss the improving outlook for children in this position are two leading experts in this area, Anna Skian from the Migrant and Refugee Children's Legal Unit and Rubatana from Islington Law Centre. Thank you both for coming on. Hi, thanks for having us. It's good to be here. Let's start by defining the problem here. So in the course of your work for those two excellent organisations, you'd encounter children who've come to the UK at a young age, maybe even born in the UK, but they don't have any legal status, let alone British citizenship. How does that come about? Uh, So there are many different ways that this can happen. Quite often results from the complexity of the immigration system and the costs involved, which prevent people who enter the UK lawfully from being able to remain lawfully here. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes people receive poor quality legal advice and as a result make applications that have no prospects of success or they make applications without the necessary documents or evidence. Uh, The cost of immigration applications, fees, health surcharges, legal fees, also mean that sometimes parents feel that they can't afford to include the whole family in an immigration application. And as parents are the breadwinners, their lawful presence is key to the family's financial viability. So as a result, they prioritise maintaining their own lawful presence and may not include children on future applications if the family can only realistically afford fees for one or two members. Where a child is born in the UK or is very long resident, there may be assumptions made about them already having a right to remain or they must automatically be British, when in law that's not the case. Um, And quite often the children or young people will have that same assumption and the discovery that they're not British or the discovery that they don't have permission to remain in the only country they can remember as their home can cause really huge identity crisis and, and even mental health problems. And so if someone has grown up in this position undocumented illegally for the range of reasons you've outlined there, Anna, they can apply for regularization. They can move from being undocumented to having permission to stay. And there are two so-called private life rules that are aimed specifically at children and young people. There's one scheme for children under 18 and there's one regularization scheme for young adults aged 18 to 25. Can you tell me about those? For the under 18s, the rules currently state that where the child can show that they've lived in the UK for a continuous period of seven years, and also that it would be unreasonable to expect them to leave the UK, then they should be granted leave to remain for a period of 30 months um, on the 10-year route to settlement. And the default position is that that leave to remain will be subject to a condition preventing them from accessing public funds To displace that default position, it's then necessary to show that the child is destitute or there are particularly compelling reasons relating to their welfare or the parent in receipt of a very low income. And then for young people who are aged between 18 to 24, 
their leave to remain will be granted where they can show that they've lived in the UK for more than half their life. There's no requirement to show that it's unreasonable or that to, for them to leave the UK, but the application is restricted to those who arrived in the UK when they were below the age of 12 and a half years because of the need to meet the half-life requirement before they uh, before the age of 25. And again, the default position is no recourse to public funds. And currently, there's the fees per applicant, the immigration health surcharge, um, which means that the cost of making the application is well over £2,000. Although children in local authority are exempt from fees, this doesn't apply to care leavers. And so you, you presumably get young people who are perfectly entitled to use these schemes, but they're priced out because they can't afford the fees. I think that we've come across many young people who have either remained undocumented because of the fees. I guess what we see more commonly is young people borrowing the money and putting them in debt at risk of exploitation. I think that's probably the more common thing that we've sort of come across. With the seven-year rule for those under 18s, you have to show that it would be unreasonable for them to leave the UK. Is that, is that a sort of a high bar to meet? I mean, theoretically, no, it's, it's not a hugely high hurdle to climb. But people can get quite focused on only providing the evidence of the seven-year presence and not addressing the question of reasonableness. Um, the Home Office policy at present is that once you've shown seven years continuous residence, the starting point is that the child should be allowed to remain. However, you can't just assume that that's going to happen. You do need to engage with, with the reality of the child's life and other members of the family and consider whether there's anything that's part of their immigration history or, or their actions that might be considered by the Home Office to be countervailing factors. Um, and then you'll be looking to try and outweigh those countervailing factors. So it's it's not a, a slam dunk. <laughs> it is something that you really do have to pay attention. And when you look at the case law relating to, to this type of application, what you see is that cases really fall down on lack of evidence. Absolutely. It can't take these things for granted. So going back to the young adult scheme, the half of life scheme, let's say you have a 22 year old, they've been in the UK continuously since the age of five, no immigration permission. That means they've been in the UK for 17 years. That's more than half their age. So they can apply under this half of life rule and uh, then all going well, they have their immigration status they would be on a 10-year route to settlements. They would constantly have to renew this permission before they get the chance to remain, uh, come out of the immigration system and apply for citizenship. Absolutely. Regardless of how long they'd lived in the UK, they have to then complete another 10 years with permission to stay before they'd be allowed to remain permanently even where they may be entered as a baby or a very small child, there's no mechanism to recognise that very long residence under the immigration rules. From, from working on cases which have been on the 10-year route now for almost a decade, we've watched our young clients bear the weight of that long route and the temporary immigration status, the feeling that they're now insecure in, the home, in their home country um, and effectively becoming deintegrated. Um, and by that, 
we mean that the young people grow up feeling British, that they belong in their communities, um, that this is where they will always live. But they discover their immigration status. They get put onto this track with repeated short grants of leave and they're set apart from their peers. They're prevented from pursuing opportunities in education, employment that the people they've grown up with have all got. The procedures involved in making applications can be quite complex and they can change in the two and a half year period. Um, People are always worried they're going to get tripped up. And then in terms of life events, it can prevent them getting that first job. It can prevent them going to university. They might need permission to, to marry. They can't do things like go on a year abroad or accept a job in, involving international travel. Um, there are so many ways in which their lives are touched by that insecure um, and repetitive circle of, of 30-month grants. Yeah, I suppose, you know, we say it's a regularization scheme, but it's sort of a conditional or semi-regularization because you get on a a pathway to full regularization, but you can fall off it for all the reasons you said. You you don't make the right application. You don't have the money. One of the things that we forget about, and I'm just reminding myself, is how many different things uh, changed over those 10 years you know, in terms of, for example, fees, you know, they would start saving up for the next lot of fees and suddenly there'd be a big spike in the immigration health surcharge. And, you know, I know fees have leveled out more recently, but before, you know, they they were going up quite significantly. And so there was always this risk of being tripped up. You know, when the rules first came in, you think, oh, well, this seems all right. You know, this has been bought in the rules and there's people that now got these opportunities. And then slowly you just come to the penny starts dropping at every point. How, you know, how harsh the system is, how penalizing it is. You know, you're talking about your example of someone who's been here at the age of five and they don't regularize their stay till they're 22. But, you know, on the 10 year route, they're going to be 32 you know, before before they can apply. I mean, it just seems so daft. And I think that we came across, you know, as Anna said, so many young people whose lives were devastated. And I just couldn't see how it could be in the public interest for children who had been here from such a young age to suddenly feel like they're outsiders, that they don't belong. The, 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 the issue of the adverse immigration history doesn't come into it. They can't attach it to them. And how is a public interest served by preventing sort of long resident, fully integrated young people from being able to move into adulthood? And 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 so that's I guess when we started what we started doing with with some of these cases with help from other people on our sort of legal team, you know, barristers at, at Doughty Street and Brick Court was a strategy really of every time we applied for an extension of leave to remain, we'd also then make you know, detailed representations on why ILR should be granted. And obviously, inevitably, they refused ILR, and then we would judicially review that decision. But that's how it sort of came about in terms of all the sort of um, legal arguments, you know, around public interest. Okay, and that uh, litigation uh, led to or contributed to, you can tell me the the causal connection, uh, to a change in this policy uh, that came in in October last year. So focusing on these 18 to 24 year olds, there was a concession to the immigration rules brought in so that if they invoked this half of life rule to get themselves on the pathway to settlement, 
it would only take five years rather than the 10. So it's a it's not immediate permanent status, but it's a quicker route to to permanent status and then citizenship. So uh, as you say, you, you you were involved in litigation that, that brought that about? Yes, yeah, so the, the, the concession was achieved kind of partly because of the litigation, but it built on work that the organisation We Belong had done in terms of campaigning, advocacy, lobbying for a five-year route settlement for their cohort, so the 18 to 24 cohort. And they provided evidence in support of the litigation, but all of that time they were also engaged with civil servants at the Home Office and they they had secured assurances from the Immigration Minister that amendments would be made to the immigration rules in due course as part of the simplification, simplification process that would address some of the concerns they had in relation to their cohort. However, at that point, the simplification process was by no means complete. And um, so what the litigation did was secure the concession as an interim acknowledgement to try and cure the irrationality of making long resident young people compete, complete a 10-year period of leave before being allowed to settle. So the concession sets out that where a young person is able to show that they're aged between 18 to 24 years and have spent half their life in the UK or have demonstrated that in relation to a previous application whilst within the correct age range. If they were born in the UK and entered as or entered as a child um, and that they've already completed five years with leave to remain um, and continue to be eligible for further leave, then they would be able to apply for indefinite leave to remain on presentation of evidence to show their integration in the UK. And, and the concession also set out the issues that the Home Office were concerned to see in terms of an application by uh, a young person. So there were guidance to caseworkers around the person's age when they arrived, um, their length of residence, including any period of unlawful residence, the strength of their connections and their integration, um, and whether previous unlawful residence had been as a result of non-compliance on the part of the young person or the parent or, or their parent or guardian when they were under 18. Um, and they were looking at what efforts the young person has made to engage with the Home Office, periods of previous leave, any period of continuous leave they'd had in the past, um, and also the impact of limited leave to remain on their health and welfare. So these were all of the issues that we had raised in the litigation and that we had brought to the attention of the Home Office as being indications that the, the length of the route was disproportionate. No, it's a great, it's a great achievement. And, but there's a lot going on in there, what you've just explained. So what, what does it amount to in practice? You know, it, this has been in place um, for a few months now. Has this helped most of your clients, your young people or a significant number of them get on this five-year route or has it left a lot of people out? As with um, all dealings with the Home Office, <laughs> There's always some sort of problem, some sort of drawback, and there are drawbacks with the concession, unfortunately. And I think there were original teething problems, and so that the first version of the policy appeared to exclude young people who had been granted leave to remain on the basis of completing half their life, but who are now, you know, 25 and over. And that was something that was cured um, by sort of correspondence with GLD and also with Home Office Civil Servants. And so version two policy quite clearly enables those that are over 25 to benefit as well. 
But there were also practical issues in terms of accessing the concession, which I feel, you know, which we felt really disappointed by. And although we tried to persuade the Home Office to make the route accessible by by basically having a special team that dealt with the applications by making it fee free and just by basically writing in they wouldn't have that and so I guess one of the major sort of drawbacks has been that it means that in order to access the concession you have to make an application which itself doesn't sound too bad except that applications at the moment in our experience um, you know family private life applications are taking about 10 months 10 months to a year for decisions, we weren't able to persuade the Home Office that really they should make this a far less formal process. But that's me sounding a bit negative about it. Yeah, give us the the upside. (laughs) No, I think that, that, you know, I think that one of the major wins for us wasn't really so much to do with the, uh, you know, how the concession operates, you know, the operational side of it all, but it was actually uh, one of the principles accepted by the Secretary of State. And I think that that was really, you know, we think that was really important where there was an acceptance that in, you know, in a cohort of cases like this, the public interest factors which underpin the 10-year ten uh, route to settlement, you know, the need to, uh, to, to basically serve a longer probationary period before qualifying for settlement in terms of encouraging uh, lawful compliance um, may be less relevant. I feel that that was quite an important win on principle, you know. I think with the new rules coming in, it's likely that the concession, obviously it makes sense that it will be withdrawn. But I think we'll continue to keep fighting on that and relying on that principle. Absolutely. No, it's an important thing. But you mentioned that there are rules coming in. So instead of, or perhaps in addition to a concession outside the immigration rules for these 18 to 24 year olds the immigration rules themselves are being changed from the 20th of june 2022 so that's this five-year route to settlement that's been in the concession uh, will will now be written into the rules themselves is that is that how it's going to work so the changes to the immigration rules set out you know the new appendix private life do to an extent, implement the terms of the concession into the immigration rules, but it's not a straight swap, so to speak. So the changes to the rules um, and the concession retain a five-year route to settlement for this group um, at paragraph PL 14.1. have to get used to saying that. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> to, yeah it's a whole new world. Um, I, don't, I don't know if we can quite go as far as to describe it as people getting to settle in the UK as standard, um, they'll still need to complete complete um, a probationary period of five years before they can settle, and they'll need to make a valid application, including paying fees and, and providing mandatory documents. So, you know, it's there. There are aspects of it that have been implemented directly, and other bits that, that there's been some change. Yeah, yeah, no, understood. But there's also been change for the other group we talked about the under 18s who have lived in the UK for at least seven years uh, they didn't have a concession putting them from 10 years to five years but uh, these changes that we talked about the appendix private life rules that are coming in in June they also make life easier for these seven-year children. Under the the new rules children born in the UK who've lived in here continuously for seven years 
can go straight to settlement, provided that it's accepted that it would not be reasonable to expect them to leave the UK. Um, straight to so, settlement, no no 10 years, no five years, just straight to... No probationary period, provided that they meet the requirements of the settlement application process. Um, other children, so those not born in the UK, but who can demonstrate seven years continuous residence and um, unreasonable to remove, will be placed on a five-year route. So, you know, that is that's a, a step forward, most definitely. Um, and it comes out of a lot of lobbying and advocacy by the sector, by the children's rights and immigration sector. Um, and the principle and the acknowledgement of the need for permanence for children is is really welcome. Um, however, <laughs> that's always a however. It's <laughs> always a however, yeah. As practitioners who work with low-income children and families, we've got concerns about how this principle will actually benefit the most vulnerable and disadvantaged children in reality because the rules have provided a theoretical route to settlement, but not made any changes to the circumstances in which fee waivers can be obtained. And therefore, it may not be something that long resident children or children born in the UK to, to low income families can access in reality. Yeah, so I mean, I think we're sort of saying that, you know, it, it's really good, but we're, we're wondering how it will pan out in practice. We're, we're talking about, you know, the majority of people on the 10-year route to settlement are going to be people on low incomes, and, and that's the reality. And, it, you know, if you've got a mandatory application fee of what's now £2,404, a lot of children are left off application simply because the adult has to put themselves as a priority because they're the ones who can work or get access to public funds. And so we're sort of wondering, again, how many of the families will opt for settlement of a child that's been born in the UK and has been here for seven years because really that that's a quite a high fee. And whereas when they're aged 10, they can apply to register as British citizens, which is half the fee. And we're sort of thinking, well, if, if, you're, if you're in that situation, are you likely to think, well, nothing bad is going to happen? Children that are technically overstayers, you know, this is how parents make those sort of decisions. Right. So you might get some, some families leaving their undocumented kids until they hit 10 when they can go straight to citizenship rather than going using this, this route purely because of a cost issue I mean there's no other reason Mm. and the rest of the family let's say you've got a family that are applying together the rest of the family might well be entitled to a fee waiver but if that if they've then got the 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 relevant child that they've forked out 2,500 for that may cause a problem with their fee waiver because where did they get the money to pay for that settlement application so Ours is always like, how's it going to work in terms of casework? And, you know, I guess our experience from having worked with families already and the sort of day-to-day problems, the decisions I have to make. Yeah, I really hear how the practicalities and the, the cost barrier are such a factor in reality, irrespective of, of what the rules say. Nevertheless, we are we are lawyers. Um, is there anything in the text of the rules, um, these new private life rules, that lawyers should be aware of? We it's something that we talk about on a daily basis at the moment with the rules coming in. Um, at the moment, with the with the lag on fee waiver decisions, we're putting in fee waiver applications. 
for people who may not get a decision until the new rules come into force and then we'll have to make the new application and and trying to work out how that's going to pan out is quite tricky because although we we've seen the text of the rules as we know those rules are fairly sparse in their detail and that the devil is in the policy guidance. Um, so until we see the content of that policy guidance, it's going to be quite difficult to, to know what approach the Home Office is like to, likely to take. We've seen with previous policies that uh, the first iteration is, is quite often problematic because it's been written it's in something of a policy vacuum. And until it's put into practical application, the the aspects of it that are problematic haven't been fully um, bottomed out. So I think it's a very, it's very, very early days. We also will need to see some of the process documents and the process guidance because we're going to have new online forms. And until you fill one of those in for the first time, you have no idea what the questions are going to say. Um, and so sometimes it can be the framing of, of those questions that give you an inkling of, of how the caseworkers are, are making decisions. It's helpful to know what we don't know, if you like. Um, uh, it sounds like there's a lot more to come on this topic. But I suppose thinking generally about these kind of child private life cases um, for people listening who may be helping clients with them or trying to get their head around this, do you have any sort of top tips for making sure these kind of applications stand the best chance of success? As I alluded to before, evidence is key. Um, if, you're, if you're preparing an application based on long residence, evidence of that long residence is essential. Um, and it's it's vital to pursue all potential sources of evidence. Make sure that you don't have any lengthy gaps in, in the evidence of presence. I think it's also essential to provide clear evidence of the nature and quality of a child's life in the UK um, and the extent to which They are identical to British peers in terms of their life experience, their education, um, to think about what the constituent parts of a child's life are, their family, yes, but they spend a large number of their waking hours in education, the opportunities for play and, and healthy activity. Like My main tip with these applications is to remember that all of the rights that are in the immigration rules uh, I mean, and in underlying statute are belong to the child. And yes, the parents will obtain leave to remain on the basis that they have a qualifying child in their family, but it's the child's rights and perspective that are the most important. I think where we see people trip up is that obviously lawyers are instructed by adults. The person they see in their office is the adult who, who is the head of, you know, the, the lead person in the family. And it can be quite easy to see the application through the perspective of that adult and forget that it's the child that that holds the key to the family remaining. It's it's really important to build the child's case and frame the rights of the adult through those. Um, And that helps you avoid the pitfall of falling into the the Home Office's narrative of blaming adults for, for their poor immigration history and wanting to punish them, which kind of underpins the 10-year route to settlement in some ways, these changes to that route reflect the kind of the, un- the distinction between someone who has a poor immigration history and someone who was not in control of their entry or otherwise to the UK. Um, and where you 
frame the application from the child's perspective and make sure that the evidence makes that child a central part of the application, you're going to be on a, on a much firmer footing um, in terms of preparing the application and obtaining leave to remain for the family. There's a lot going on with this. There'll be guidance coming out. We'll see in future how the rules pan out. So it's a subject that we'll return to on free movement in future, but we had better begin to wrap it up for now. Um, any concluding thoughts or points um, on this uh, issue of, of tenure children? The tenure route is something that, as I said before, we've seen destroy the lives and quality of lives of family. And so even though the children may not be on the 10-year route anymore, let's say their their parents still will be and they, they will still feel the adverse impact of their, their other family members being on the 10-year route. But sort of moving away from this, you know, one of our key aims is well, how can we get people out of the 10-year route? And it's not always easy and it's always very difficult with those that are seen to have an adverse immigration history because of public interest factors. But, you know, we've taken a lot of our work that we did around the 10-year route um, litigation and we're, we're trying to apply it to other classes of vulnerable applicants and so our sort of starting point now is test the boundaries of the 10-year route. Let's say young people who came here after they were 12 and a half or vulnerable adults with, you know, serious sort of mental health problems or physical disabilities. Other, other vulnerable applicants, what we are still doing in, in those cases is that we are making their applications for extension of leave, but still making uh, arguments that they should be granted indefinite leave to remain. So we're still trying to push on that policy uh, in terms of the exercise of discretion and making arguments around public uh, interest factors being less relevant in certain circumstances. So I, I, I would urge people to look at the look at the circumstances of your client and, and think about ways that you can argue a longer route ILR for them. Yeah. Thanks very much to you both. We'll leave it there. Anna Skihan from the Migrant and Refugee Children's Legal Unit and Rupa Tana from Islington Law Centre. I'm CJ McKinney. This has been the Free Movement Podcast. If you like this episode, you may like to become a member. We've got training courses and ebooks and all sorts on www.freemovement.org.uk. I'll be back with the next episode of this podcast with Colin Yeo on Friday, the 10th of June. Until then, thanks for listening.